And good morning. This is Eric Rollins, the Constitutionalist, here on 1550 KXCX, the best talk in town. Welcome. I'm excited today. Uh, I have a guest that I think has some solutions for California. So I'm really looking forward to what's going on today. Uh, I'm joined by Jenny Ray LaRue. But first, my opportunities to get involved with our local because we got to change local if we have a chance if we want a chance to change something bigger than that so kind of there's where i start sunday march 27th is a medical freedom rally that is from two to four and i believe it is at blackstone and nice monday uh no cfc meeting tuesday the kingsburg chapter of constitutionals for california is having Connie Conway. She is running in the special election for David Nunes at 15,000 Rose Avenue. That's a 6.30 p.m. meeting. Wednesday, we have a Clovis Unified School Board meeting. That's at 6.30 p.m. So that is March 30th, 6.30 p.m. at 1680 David E. Cook Way. Not as many uh, events this week as normal. Uh, but now I have my guest, Jenny Ray LaRue. She is running for the governor of California. Welcome, Jenny. Tell me just, just a little bit about, about your history, your background. All right, Eric. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm running for governor of California. And my training for the executive CEO of the state of California came from the business world. I'm a business person who spent about 10 years in the corporate world. I worked with large organizations and CEOs of government and for-profit institutions. And I'm an expert on growth. My focus was on helping them unlock ways to grow their organizations uh, and do that cost-effectively. In addition, I spent a little bit of time building two companies, one in energy technology and one in payments technology. And then 10 years ago, I purchased a company where the owner had lost his vision for the future, and I've grown it now into an international firm. And I did that by unlocking value for our customers and making sure that we had the most remarkable staff in the world by giving them the option to work from home starting in 2012. So we were a little ahead of the curve on what a lot of people have now figured out as a disruptive force in labor markets. I'm really passionate about reviving the California dream. Uh, You know, I've lived the California dream. I moved here in a small little Honda with everything I owned in the back trunk. And, <laughs> and uh, I've built a, an amazing life for myself. My family and I live on a 181 acres. I have three little boys, ages nine, five, and two. Um, we run a company remotely that has given me flexibility and a lot of opportunity to both engage with the world and also build a garden and orchards that I really love. And, uh, and you know, ultimately, uh, I recognized about two years ago, right at the beginning of the pandemic, that the leadership that we have in California is not the leadership that can take us to the places that we need to go through the crises that we face today and beyond to build the future. So that's why I'm getting involved and why I'm really excited about this race for governor. I want to make Gavin Newsom a one-term governor. Let us hope. Um, Not not just hope, it's also in my prayers. Because I don't put prayers and a whole lot of work. We're doing it all. Uh, So is the governor's race now closed or can somebody else still jump in? No, it's, it's all done. It's finalized. So then I know that you were involved in the CRA convention. You want to, you want to share the news about that? 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, two really big announcements happened actually in the last week. So on Friday last week, I announced that I was the first in the race to raise a half a million dollars. So even though some people had been in it for a much longer time and uh, in you know the under two weeks since I launched, we were able to make that announcement, which was tremendously exciting. And then following that on Sunday, I received the great news that I was endorsed by the CRA, uh, which I, I'm assuming that many people on here would know, but it's the premier grassroots organization of the Republican Party really holds conservative values dear and the focus is on ensuring that the kinds of candidates that are proposed you know through the party and up through the race and supported are the ones that hold our values so it was such an honor uh, and an honor to have the CRA behind me as I work to win the primary and then also go up against Newsom. So that was held relatively close here in the Central Valley and I had a lot of delegates that were texting me, well, what do you think? You've met some of these people. So um, I definitely gave them what I what I knew about you and, and straight. And I think that one of the things that's great is you're smart, you're honest, you're real. So not a politician first, not telling people what they want to hear. All of those are things that we desperately need. And then you add in the business background and the fact that you're invested in protecting the future of your kids really makes you more invested than some people. So I think those are all important things. One of the things I wanted to discuss today was what's going on with EIP. So Election Integrity Project. A little bit of history about EIP. Uh, They have been watching elections. They won a major battle in L.A. to get the voter rolls cleaned. They're currently in a battle that is before the Ninth Circuit in Discovery. We'll probably have to go to the Supreme Court. And just it, everything they do has to do with wanting election integrity. They've got some solutions, but without a governor and a secretary of state, because a governor can do a lot, but you're going to need the help of a secretary of state to actually well. come close to fixing this one. Um, we can do a lot. I think a lot of the things that need to happen are limiting the mail-in ballots, having voter ID having ballots that can't be copied, you know, basically just like money, you know, make it so it's so prohibitively difficult that they don't bother to cheat in that way. Um, I have problems with the machines, but since they won't allow an audit, but as governor, that's one of the things you could do. You can force audits in all kinds of ways. Yeah. I, I, you know, um, in 2020, during the pandemic, the Democrats and specifically Gavin Newsom used the pandemic as an opportunity to push forward a relaxation of standards in our elections. And it has led to the lowest trust in our elections in history. And, you know, trust in your elections is the basic fundamental of democracy. And I used to live when I was in my very early corporate career, my first job, I lived about a mile away from the Jimmy Carter Center in downtown Atlanta. Their whole job is to monitor elections. Mm-hmm. And, and, this, and a lot of the things that, sure that Jimmy Carter wanted. Fair and without compulsion. Yeah. And a lot yeah, of those things that Jimmy Carter did, right? And he, he set up the template for fair and honest elections and then he got ignored because the Democrats realized, well, but then we, it was harder to get elected. Now, I don't know why that would be it, just bizarre to me. 
maybe that maybe your solutions aren't working or maybe the message isn't the right one you know it could be those issues but but yeah you know election integrity is going to be a really critical part of establishing trust in our government another piece that of course i'm working on is getting out somebody who in office is hypocritical who doesn't uh, you know do what he says that he will do and who goes against the values that would serve the people of California in order to serve himself. So and we have, we need a culture change and we need the practical action to back that up in elections or one key way to do that. So I think two ways that we can go about the practical actions. One is helping your, your campaign. If, if you're the, the candidate for people, then yeah. helping your campaign. The other one is poll watching and Absolutely. you can sign up for that at EIP. Uh, slash California, not slash, uh, hyphen California.com. You can donate to EIP or if you sign up before the end of March um, and go through their training, you can become a poll watcher. And so maybe you don't have money to donate, but if you have time, there's one of the places you can get involved. If you can't pick a candidate, it still matters that we have an election integrity. You know, you mentioned one of the lowest confidence levels anywhere. Hmm. Yeah. That's a scary Absolutely. thought. And, you know, yeah, we can, we, we can and should do everything that we can to ensure that the votes that are coming in are counted fairly correctly. Um, that if there's a signature that doesn't match, it's actually thrown out. You know, that um, th- th- those pieces at the ballot box are so critical. We need 100% coverage mm-hmm. of our precincts and ballot boxes in this upcoming election. And, and really, you know, anything short of that leaves gaps, right? Because what, if there's one that's not being watched, what the heck might we do? So yeah, I would encourage everybody to get involved in that. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, um, there are procedural things that we need to do later. Um, but it's a there's an argument going around that we should just not vote because the vote doesn't matter. Um, and I just really want to encourage everybody, we actually need to vote and vote overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. We need to vote so that there's no question um, of, of the issue. Um, and that surprise is part of what will put the people in office that will enable this change to happen. So yeah, I'm looking very forward to being a part of that solution and reestablishing trust. Well, change doesn't happen if you sit on your butt, folks. Uh, you know, you're, you're guaranteed results if you don't act. I can't say the B word, so I'm glad you said it. <laughs> so an incredibly important issue. Um, I know that that's one of the things and one of the reasons why when you talked about that at the CRA, because I had delegates get back to me. They're so concerned about that issue. But we realize that if you don't vote, um, even if there's cheating, um, you can't change anything. Yeah. We couldn't yeah, get you know, some Republicans elected if it didn't work. Sometimes they can't cheat all the right. time in every way. <laughs> that's right. And yeah, you're, it's, you're just kind of plugging the gaps wherever you can. I'm a systems thinker. I'm the kind of person who looks at a big organization and can kind of figure out where the big levers are. And, and, you know, this is one of them um, making sure that we have people at the, at the polls, ensuring that we're watching. Um, but, but the second one is making sure that we and our friends and everyone we know and our neighbors and our neighborhoods are turning in their ballots, right? Because yep. if, we, if we pull one lever without the other, we're, we're not actually solving the problem. We don't get, get the chance to make the change we want. Yep. And while I truly dislike ballot harvesting and I want people to vote in person if any way possible, and I would feel even better if mm-hmm. rather than take their ballot, 
What if you were to offer to take that neighbor or that friend down to the polling place and go with them? That's a bigger step than just taking their ballot. I get ballot harvesting is legal. That's the rules of the game in California for now. But it allows for problems because more people touch your ballot. So, yeah, you know, it's kind of ironic that we have a rule that within, I think it's 30 feet of a precinct, you can't manipulate a vote, right? You can't hand out literature, you can't talk to somebody, but you can go to their home, sit at their kitchen table and literally fill out their ballot physically for them and then have them sign it. Mm -hmm. And that's not considered coercion. So it's just another example of those kinds of hypocritical rules that a government for the people by the people needs to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of your other strengths is is the fact that you're a small business owner. You talked a little bit about that and about systems. You also did something I thought was really interesting because I stayed connected through email. You highlighted candidates. It wasn't all about you. It was about here's possibilities to help change the state. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to do that? What was the thinking there? Yeah, Absolutely. Well, I, my two guiding principles are hope and generosity. And I mentioned, you know, I had these two stages in my career, a corporate stage, and then a small business stage where I bought a business and grew it. And when you're an operator, even a leader in a business versus an owner, you do think differently. And one of the things you think about when you're the owner is you have to shape the culture. Um, Hope and generosity, the way that I define those are that hope is the belief that anything is possible. It's one of my guiding principles in our business, right? There's never a can't, there's just a, we haven't figured it out yet. And then the second one is generosity. There's always more than enough, more than enough time, more than enough resources to put toward great ideas, more than enough people, uh, more than enough. You know, we, we are incredibly generous as a business. We give away services and ideas. Uh, and it, it has 100% transformed the culture, created longevity in who we are and, and gone beyond that. So when I thought about the kind of governor that I want to be, it's the kind of person who is generous toward other people in the party. Because if I believe that there's more than enough money to be raised, I'm going to help other people. Right? I'm going to help them raise money. If I don't, I'm going to cut them off at the knees. <laughs> and that's what I've seen inside our party is that there are people who have these little fiefdoms who, who you know, really close them down to try to keep other people out instead of taking a long view. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, one of the ways that I thought I could very practically do that is exactly what I would have wanted somebody to do for me, which is just to help educate me about some of the critical positions that I now know a tremendous amount about that as a business owner working on my business, I didn't know as much about, um, and the great candidates that are running for them, and then just let them make their own decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Give them the candidates, give them some of the ideas. Um, Generosity is not uh, is not manipulative, right? It's like, it's very giving oriented. And so I gave people the candidates that, um, that I know that are, that had filed, that are running for the positions and said, Hey, reach out to them. If you want to do something on their behalf, this will be incredibly powerful. That's almost, that's kind of team building also. 100%. Well, you know, the idea came before this, you asked where the idea came from. So I, I gave you the backstory on that. But but I saw this in play in uh, the Virginia race with Glenn Youngkin. Glenn Youngkin ran as a team post primary with the Attorney General and the Lieutenant Governor. Um, and those Three candidates did events together. They did fundraisers together. Um, they met with voters together. And that unified 
view of what your future leadership team could look like, not just your leader, um, is a part of what got not just one, but three Republicans elected to statewide office in a, in a state that had not seen that in over a decade. And um, so, you know, post-primary, we'll do the same thing in California. Those of us that are the candidates are going to work together to get all of us over the line. And we're going to share resources. We're going to do mail together. You know, there are a lot of things that we can do to revamp a generosity culture inside the candidate pool. And, and the one way to do that is just to take the leadership on my own. Well, very cool. That, that leaves me hopeful. You know, yeah, Eric, you know, I, I met with somebody um, who worked with Reagan. Uh, I met with him on Tuesday this week and, and, um, and, and he didn't start here, but I said, I had just asked him who was the last really generous leader you know, in California, somebody who really believed that there was more than enough time, resources, money, and energy. And he said it, he, he really, you know, said it's hard to say anything other than subjectively, right? You know, it's right. just his personal opinion. But, but he said Reagan really did espouse that. He would visit the local field offices and sit down with the workers that were there. He would, um, you know, invite other people to fundraisers and make sure that their names became known. And, um, and he said, you know, it, it's not one thing that's commonly known about him, but he would, he was incredibly supportive, you know, up and down the ballot of other candidates and, uh, and, and did that through friendship. And, you know, it was almost like I kind of had a hunch, but, but it was nice to hear that confirmation. And I think, uh, I think there's something we can do there in the culture as we're beginning to think about how we shape the whole culture of California to do it amongst conservatives as well. Well, Reagan was very much about hope and optimism. And I hope it's not that I want those days because there's a new, there's a new feature future in a different set of challenges, but bringing yeah. that hope and optimism absolutely could change the state. And if we can change the state, California leads in a whole lot of ways. I think that's why we're seeing a lot of the cultural rot. We are because our leadership at the top is rotten. We need to change that. What do we do about homelessness? Well, we attack it in the same way that we would, right? Part mind. So there are solutions. We research the solutions and I'll share a little bit about the ones that I've discovered so far in the state. We identify what the real problems are. We look at the numbers, what we're spending, um, and we measure it correctly. You know, that's the mind part of it. We have to actually, um, you know, run it like a problem that we're focusing on solving. And Newsom's plan for just about everything is spend more money and tell people how much money he spent on it. And, you know, that's, that's his metric, how much I spent. It's a terrible metric. It's the yeah. worst metric, actually, for a government to use. Um, the, the other thing that we need to do is use heart. Right? We have to recognize that, that people are people, um, that homeless people are people. So homeless people aren't data worksheets and programs and plans. They're people. And I think that's a big piece of what's been missing from our homelessness solution in California. And, and you know, so let me just talk about the solution and how we're going to bring those two together. Uh, the most successful homelessness programs in the state and in the nation, start with one thing, and that's the name of the homeless people in its community. So Los Angeles and San Francisco, when you go there, they do not know at a, at a citywide or an organizational level, the names, the ages, and the veteran or non-veteran status of the homeless. That is what crazy. What does that mean? 
that's crazy, right? They, they can't tell you how many people there are, how many people have access services. I mean, it is, it is crazy. And here's why. Because the state is organized around the delivery of services, around programs, not around people. And the most successful homelessness programs, which many of them are not in California, but a few of them are here, start with the names of the people. And they use a case-based model where a person is a caseworker who figures out what is, what is this one person's challenge? Is it a job? Is it mental health? Is it drug abuse, right? Is it a, a clean and safe um, place to stay? Um, so, so that's kind of one of the key issues is moving from this homeless industrial complex with office-based people who wait for the homeless to walk in you know, just literally in an insane idea, it doesn't work, um, to a case-oriented system that's very human-based. It, it's cheaper to do it that way because you're not sitting people in offices pushing paper that they're not going to actually deliver anything on. Um, but then the second one is really focusing on, what, you know, what we think of in business as product that people want. And, and people here, the stakeholders, are the homeless and the communities that they're in, not one or the other. Um, the people that are in the homeless communities often propose solutions like busing the homeless to the desert, right? That, that's not actually a complete solution. The homeless are like, I would like to set up a tent in your front yard. Also not a good solution. Yeah. And so um, I just visited this week uh, an example of this type of solution that takes the two of those together. It's a gated community on a piece of land that is in the process of being entitled. So the community is temporary. Um, they have around, it's, I think, 80 to 100 square feet rooms um, that are furnished with a bed, a desk, um, and they're, you know, climate controlled. They'll, they're built to emergency housing standards, um, and they can be put up and taken down, and then they're assigned um, to people. They're, you know, more secure than a shelter where you're in a room with a lot of people that often are unsafe themselves, um, and, uh, you know, more humane than a tent. Right. And um, and the, these communities, like I mentioned, they're gated, which for me was one of the most remarkable things about them, because a tent community often is not right. You, right. you have to walk past it on the way to work. Um, but they're gated, which provides safety both for the, the residents, the homeless and the community. Um, the resource providers, the programs are using data to measure how many people participate in culinary training job programs and construction training job programs to, you know, gather and ideate about ways that we can move people from homelessness to fully employed and in housing of their own. Um, and, and, you know, it really creates a secure community where people are able to stop surviving and focus on thriving. And so, you know, that kind of creativity is what California is known for. Um, the best part about it is that it's about one fifteenth as expensive as nuisance programs. Wow. Right? And so, uh, so, you know, it, we have to bring it all together, human centric, focus on solving the problem, good for the homeless and communities and cost effective. And those solutions are out there. Those are the ones that we need to expand in the state. I'm going to add one more element. Um, the the successful homeless programs in my area are ones that do all those things, but they're also faith based. And I know yeah. you can't force that on people, but yeah. the you know all of those element, other elements, and then you add faith, and all of a sudden, I think that it is much more successful, and people now have hope. 
Because yeah. let's face it, if you can make that leap of faith, and it, it, it has to be a leap, yeah. um, it changes your whole perspective. It does. You know, faith for me, I came to faith when I was in the fourth grade. Uh, I mean, it has changed my life, saved me from a performance-based ideology and, and connected me in love with a lot of people. And that connection, right? You know, I've often heard it said that the, the antidote to addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and... So, so, yeah, I think that you're exactly right about that. We're going to go ahead and take a break. This is Eric Rollins, the Constitutionalist, here on 1550 KXEX, the best talk in town. This is Eric Rollins, the Constitutionalist, here on 1550 KXEX, the best talk in town. Today, I am joined by Ginny Ray LaRue, recently endorsed by the California Republican Assembly. Um, I hope that the California Republican Party actually finds the strength to endorse a candidate last round during the recall. They did not. Um, Jenny Ray is a small business owner, a mom, a busy mom. A busy mom. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> Hey, when you want something done, give it to a busy woman. That's one of the sayings. Well, I, to pull all this off, you have to be organized. <laughs> yes, very organized. So what do we do about inflation and gas? Yeah, that's a hard one at, at, at an executive level because it almost has to be fixed at a higher level, but there's probably some small solutions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me just start by saying, um, you know, the the main driver of inflation that we have right now is the fiscal monetary policy at the Fed. No question about it. Printing money drives inflation. There's no other way um, that you can be guaranteed to have inflation other than that. Everything else is much more complex. So the printing of money that we did during the pandemic to pay for what I believe were pretty irresponsible federal assistance programs instead of just allowing businesses and people to make their own decisions um, and get back to work and solve problems in their communities, you know, really has, has hampered and driven the origin of inflation. What's compounding it though? Cause that's really what I want to talk about. These are the things that we can fix. Regulation in California is one of the main ones. We have a regulatory base that is saying, you know, Hey, we need to continue to focus on being anti-business which means that we are adding regulations, which always add expense to businesses. And let me tell you, when you add expense to a business, guess what they do? They add it straight to their prices. And so, you know, one of the things that we can do at a statewide level is to remove some of that regulation. And I'm going to tie that here to your gas price question, right? Because some people have said gas prices are a commodity market. It's supply and demand. Exactly. What can we do about supply and demand in California? We can unleash supply. We have reserves of oil um, that we, with permitting from the governor's office signed by executive order and expedited, could be producing oil in California. And we went from being a 95% self-sufficient state to a 40% self-sufficient state. And the difference is foreign oil. California is the largest importer of foreign oil in the United States. And so we are causing our country to be non-energy independent. The way to get that back is to increase our supply. And that will have 
both effects on the gas prices, um, but also it will return jobs to communities in California and it will improve our security as a nation. So, you know, many of these are complex problems, but when you break them down, you do find that there's one root cause of the issue and it's government that got a little too big for its riches and has thought that they could spend needlessly without any effects. And, and inflation, gas prices, um, these kind of issues are the ones that need to be solved by good government that's thinking long-term. Well, I noticed that our governor said that our state has a surplus, but we're completely ignoring the unfunded liabilities that have to do with retirees. How about that? Yeah. So he's playing a shell game and pretending that needs to be exposed. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a surplus is only, right? Any any mom knows that when you're balancing a checkbook in a house, that if you have extra cash in the bank, but you're overladen with debt, you don't actually have a high net worth, right? You just have another month to try to catch up. And that's really what Gavin Newsom is doing in the state and with the state's budgets. And our, you know, we've, we've messed around with our pension liabilities by just saying, we can hit 8% targets for growth. Um, You know, we haven't been able to do that in years. And, um, and these challenges for what we can do with our, uh, with our pension are a big piece of the surplus. But you know, what he's not saying what he should is that a surplus, if he really has one, indicates that we're overtaxing our people. We don't need that money. We didn't budget for it. Um, and, and you know, what Newsom always does, what he did last year, um, what he has always done is to create new programs with a surplus that then will have to be funded by an ongoing continual budget. 400 new programs last year, Eric. Wow. And this is some of the stuff that absolutely infuriates me. Um, you know, we have we already have uh, more tax agencies in California. Uh, most states have one. We have, I think, uh, seven major and nine minor tax agencies. Um, they don't talk to one another. You know, if you have a problem with one, they don't have the same systems. You can't work through them. That kind of bureaucracy is the one that's adding programs. You've got to be kidding me. Right. So we have got a lot to do. Well, from a governmental organizational level at the state where we could strip out costs, um, reduce the regulations and bring cost of living and gas prices back down to normal levels just by what we can do in California. How many employees does the governor technically oversee? And then how could you get rid of employees if you chose to? Yeah, well, we've got employees and contractors. Gosh, I think at the last count, it was something like 80,000. It's one of the largest organizations in the world. Um, And, you know, getting rid of employees is not one of my first jobs. We have so many crises to fix in California that doing a hiring and a firing spree is is not going to be productive. But one of the ways that you reduce headcount and create efficiency over time is that you don't replace employees that leave. So when an employee leaves, you replace what that employee was doing with technology, um, right, with more efficient services, with um, higher uh, qualified or or quality people that are doing the work. Um, And so instead of just doing what Newsom does, which is add costs, add money and add people to every problem, you figure out ways to get it done faster and better. And I'll give you an example. Um, Newsom's solution for the EDD was to close his eyes and look the other way while we lost upwards of $20 billion that's been confirmed, maybe as bad as $30 billion. One of the things that we're seeing here right now with the EDD is that they got a proposal 
to, instead of adding people, just add technology. It would have cost them $1 million, Eric. Wow. Yeah. $1 million. I forgot right? about to, that one. That's just depressing. The EDD. And so, so we could have spent a million to save 20 billion every day of the week as governor, I will make that decision. And those are some of the things that in the administrative state we can do to improve the operations and make our state more taxpayer friendly, more customer service oriented, more business friendly. Well, cool. A huge issue in California is water because one of one of the things that California still does well is it is the breadbasket for the world. Absolutely. But farmers are not getting allocated water and it is a big tangled mess. On a state level, you can't fix quite all of it because there is a, a federal portion, but you can certainly do some things. What do we do on water? I can do some things myself and I can go to war on the others. So let's, let's talk about what that's going to look like. Um, you know, number one, uh, we need to turn on the Delta pumps. That's something that I do have authority over at the state level. And um, so turning on those Delta pumps, um, not, not necessarily when we normally think that rain will fall, but when rain is actually falling, you know, this year we received the majority of our rain and, and water flow in December, which is before we normally get it. Um, I have a lake on my property that is dam controlled and um, we just close the dam. Think about that, Eric, as an idea, right? Just don't, flush the water out to the ocean. So, you know, so that's under my authority. Um, the other thing that's under my authority are appointments at the state water board, right? So appointing water managers who do water management on a multi-year basis instead of a single season basis um, and who are focused on delivering the contracts, um, trying to figure out ways to do that instead of ways not to do it. You know, those are a couple of the key things that I specifically can do. Um, and then at the federal level, it's, you know, I, I have the bully pulpit. I mean, one of the things that you have as the governor is the ability to talk about what's happening. I know that there are a lot of people in California that do not understand why we don't have water. In fact, they think it's because it's not falling from the sky. And the <laughs> fact that the majority is a water management. Okay. You're cutting out to share with the people of California while I'm in office. Absolutely. I do agree. Okay. agree. It's first a management now? issue and second a, a supply issue. Long-term, we have to fix some of the supply yeah. issue, but short-term, it's all about yeah. allocating the water that's there, planning for the fact that as far back as we have records of California, we have a cycle and we have a wet year and then we have multiple dry years and then we have a that's wet right. year. And there seems to be no planning that, that takes into account long-term. Even short term, I mean, short term, you're going to have rain in some parts of the year and not in other parts. So you have to capture the rain when it falls. And then over the long term, same thing. You can't use all your water in one year if you know it might have to last you for five. Um, but yeah, yeah, not just that, you know, you mentioned um, water storage and, you know, really ultimately the use of water technology, which includes storage is the most cost-effective one, but also water recycling. You know, we really underuse water recycling technology. Um, desalination is incredibly power intensive and very expensive, but there are probably a few select applications where we can use that in the state. But, but the first question of any leader of the governor of California, the first question for me is how do we make sure we have more than enough water? Not how do we allocate the sparse amount of water that we can't figure out 
you know, what to do with. And so more than enough water has to be the high standard that we're working toward. And we need to get some of these projects done, um, some of the management improved and a better message out to the people of California so that we can do more for longer. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have multiple friends in the ag industry and, you know, they're forced to do things like drip to, to make their water stretch. Now, I understand that's a good thing, but when you don't flood irrigate, none of that water makes it down to re- replenish your water table. And we're seeing a huge problem with that throughout the Central Valley. You know, and the Central Valley doesn't have a lot of pull, yet we're the economic engine in many ways for California. So I, I, I see water and I see ag is absolutely essential, even though it doesn't affect the big population in San Francisco and LA that much, but we don't have a replacement. We have the best weather, the best soil and the best irrigation system in the world. You know, um, it wasn't, it's not shocking to me, but it does explain it. The, the central Valley accounts for 9% of the GDP of the state, right? Um, 1% of the vote. Yeah. And it actually specifically highlights the mastery of the federalist construction of the United States. The fact that we balanced our urban centers with the producers of agriculture. And, you know, what we need, one one way to create balance of power is simply to have someone in one of the three branches that will do something for the producers. You know, uh, on the business owners are a great other class in the state, right? Business owners are a tiny portion of the population in California. So it's very easy in a, you know, in a fully democratic society that focuses just on volume of votes to focus on the workers and the people who get stuff for free. But the value creators are our business people. And that's why you see in states like Massachusetts, and Maryland and Virginia, these business people who are Republican governors in fully deep blue states that have incredibly high favorability ratings, right? Because they're doing that balance of power work that is so necessary um, that we don't have provided for in our legislature in California. Yeah, there's no balance. There's no doubt about that. No, that's my job. Value creators, but I want to term that a slightly different way. Those are employers. Government really, when the government creates another job, um, that money didn't start from somewhere. They took the money from the value creators and tied that money up so that now there was less capital available for the entrepreneurs to go out and do something. This idea that government creates wealth is ridiculous to me. No, government creates structure upon which wealth can be built or not built. Yes, right? that... Government provides the guardrails, maybe some roads, ideally some water. Right? Some of the basic things that a good government does is provide the structure so that people can move from survival in order to focus on creativity. How do you solve a problem of developing an entire basin with rich land? You need water to get there, right? We did that in a masterful way. That kind of vision is what we need again. Mm-hmm. We're going to go ahead and take another break. This is Eric Rollins, the Constitutionalist, here on 1550 KXCX, the best talk in town. 
This is Eric Rollins, the Constitutionalist, here on 1550 KXEX, the best talk in town. Today I am joined by Jenny Ray LaRue. She is running for the California governor position. Hopefully we're going to turn Newsom on his head. And we're going to wait for that day. Oh, I have nothing but hopes and dreams that he will go. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm really, uh, you know, I'm really excited about this election and I'm going to give you guys at the end of the segment, just uh, some hope for why I think that this is a winnable election. Uh, Not just why I hope it's a winnable election, but why I think it's a winnable election. Uh, I think that we need to make sure that we're anchoring ourselves in facts and we know exactly what we need to do. So Eric, I'll let you ask the questions, but I want to make sure we get up there. Okay. So I just kind of wanted to start with the state of our schools. Um, You know, I go to school board meetings regular. I speak regularly. I go to two different districts because I'm right on the border and I have family and friends in both. Always speak if I can. Once in a while, I'm running late. And, you know, if you don't sign up early enough, they don't allow you to speak. Even if it's before the speaking time, there's they have a window when you can sign up. Our schools are an utter mess. Even our good schools are not that great in California if we're talking about public schools because things like social promotion happen. And that that is just one aspect. Um, what do we do about that? How can you lead yeah. as governor? Well, this is really important to me, Eric, because I have kids in public school. And so I am on the fight, in the fight every day as a mom who is watching over what's happening. And and look, I really want my kids to be in public school. I want them to have a remarkable education. And our school is a Spanish immersion school. I cannot teach my kids fluent Spanish at home. What we want in our schools is the kind of place where unlocking imagination and language and skills that they can't get in our home are, are possible for them. And, uh, you know, so... I I am 100% in favor of first, you know, what you'll see in office across the country is a ban on CRT in schools. Um, We just rolled out last year through the legislature, the passage of a requirement to complete ethnic studies um, at the end of, uh, you know, graduation in order to graduate from high school. Um, You know, we, we don't need to be adding those kinds of social programs to schools, what we need to be adding are things like financial literacy and coding, you know, the ability for our students to really cope with skills for the workforce in the modern world. Um, And so number one, what do we do? uh, You know, everyone up and down the state, I really do encourage you to get involved by running for school board and participating in your school boards. Um, As the governor, I can release a lot of decision-making from the state back to the school boards so that we have localized accountability. Right now, Newsom's plan is always to centralize, to create complexity by um, forcing a one-size-fits-all program. And I can guarantee that your school and your community is very different than a school in Reading, is very different than a school in Los Angeles. And those schools really can and should be managed to metrics and standards, but using different creative methods and sharing those instead. And so I can unlock some of the programmatic uh, way that that's been forced. And the third thing is that I have appointments, um, you know, including on the curriculum board. I couldn't believe this last year, but over 50% of our curriculum board is based in one county, Los Angeles County. Doesn't that explain a lot? That explains a whole lot. We have 58 counties in California, but, but over 50% 
of the entire curriculum board is based in Los Angeles County. In addition, the majority are not parents. That's huge. So, so, you know, as a mom, I think super differently than I did as an ideological 23 year old. And as a mom, I care really deeply about the culture of my school, about the curriculum of my school, about the safety of the kids in school. Um, And, you know, everything from top to bottom in our education system needs to be reimagined to make California a number one school system again. And I'm not going to stop until that's what we're working toward. Agreed. Um, The one thing I would add is you mentioned all of these great ideas mm-hmm. on on how to help our schools, but I think that we also need a course on basic freedoms about the Constitution. We we as a people, not meaning me personally or you, um, don't seem to value freedom, and the Constitution sets us up so that we all have freedom, and that while it it has had flaws along the way and has had to be improved. You know, women didn't have the right to vote. Um, minorities were not treated right at one point. I believe most of that problem is fixed, not entirely, but most of that problem is fixed. But we we are frankly ignorant. Um, I dealt with a candidate last night and I asked him about the Ninth Amendment and he had no idea. And that for constitutionalists for California, for the group I represent, that's the only one, if you read at the very beginning of our website, he didn't bother to read our website. So I, I just, yeah, go ahead. I, I can't agree with you more because, um, you know, we're building a generation that is used to being managed instead of being creators. Like I mentioned, right. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're building a society that wants to have the government fix our problems um, instead of them saying, Hey, what we're going to do is create a, you know, some guardrails some some basic functions of public safety, which we have to restore PS. We haven't talked a lot about that, but that's another key issue in the state. Um, we, we, but, but, you know, if we create people um, who are used to having their freedoms infringed upon, then they're going to grow up and build a system that does exactly that. And um, what we've, what we've, you know, what was the mastery of the constitution is that not just did it provide for freedoms, but it provided mechanisms to continually develop um, what, you know, freedom can and should look like as society evolves. And the, the um, you know, kind of firmness and also the flexibility um, of the institutions to continue to build what the American dream looks like. Uh, same foundations in California. We are losing our minds when it comes to thinking about the California dream. Um, mm-hmm. And we have to go back to the fundamentals of what makes government good government, what makes government bad government. We need to do more of the good and none of the bad. Agreed. Well, we're down to about three minutes. So I just kind of hope and solutions, I think, is where I'm focused here. Obviously, you believe that you being elected as, as our new governor is one of the solutions. So what's your website? How do, how do people get involved if they like what you're saying? And then just generally, why are you hopeful? Great. Well, my website is JennyRayCA.com, J-E-N-N-Y-R-A-E-C-A.com. You can also find us on all social channels. You can email us at the website. Um, you can you know, give us a call. We would absolutely love if you have a business 
Um, we would love to learn about your business. Uh, we would even love to potentially be hosted by your business. We do tours in business communities around the state, often two or three businesses a day when we're visiting. So if you have a business to invite us, please do that. Oops, just lost my, uh, <laughs> just lost my earpod. Um, so if you've got a business, would love to have you, if you want to contribute, you know, that's one of the main ways that we can get this message out. Eric, thank you for the service um, that you're doing in your community. Um, but, you know, we, we use 100% of our money to get the message out. Um, my business made a decision that we were going to fund the operations of the campaign so we could spend the entire um, giving from other people directly into just getting this hopeful message out. And, you know, why do I have hope for California? I looked at the exit polls after the recall and a lot of people said, oh, no, this will never happen. And I said, no, no, they're telling us something. Um, one of the big indicators of how people voted was the economy. Things have changed mm -hmm. in the economy. Um, one of the things that they were looking at was, um, you know, Newsom and the surplus. They, they really believed that that was a factor. Well, this year, we've got high gas prices and inflation that are really big challenges. Um, Newsom's favorability ratings were above 50%. Now they're below 40, and he's actually failing in the 20% range on every issue except for what is deemed as climate change. And um, so, you know, we have some major opportunity to keep the conversation focused on the center of the state, maintaining our conservative values, exactly what Glenn Youngkin did um, in Virginia, um, and just hammering away at hope for a better future in the state. And uh, when we do that, when people look away from Newsom because they're disappointed in what they see around the state, they have to find someone who has hope and solutions for a future that they want to be a part of. Uh, the, the reason that I'm running and the core of my message is that a better future is possible and the California dream won't just happen again. It's going to be a new, better version of the California dream, the dream well, 2.0. Well, I thank you for sharing this time with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Any final thoughts? We're, we're basically wrapped up. Well, you'll get a ballot in the mail around May 8th. Please vote. Please have everyone that you know vote. Um, please contribute to my campaign or if there's someone else that you love. You know, we, we do want you to get involved financially. And even if it's 5 or $10, I can't tell you how encouraging it is when somebody gives to a race like this. Um, and then finally, you know, just please pray for us. Please pray for the people who are um, putting their, their heads, necks, and families out there for the world to see. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to maintain courage. And, and your prayers are really valuable to us. So thank you again, Eric, for having me. Uh, let's go make this happen. Absolutely. We need to change California. This is Eric Rollins, the Constitutionalist here on 1550 KXEX, the best talk in town. 